This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property. Lots going on, as per normal, in the news, with legislation changes and all sorts. We've got a little bit of uh, light-heartedness in today's show, as well as some more serious issues. Just a little bit of a mixture, but I certainly hope you enjoy. The show is recorded in Palmerston North in New Zealand, so of course there's a bit of local content at the beginning, and then we go a bit wider afield into some general uh, news, which can be really helpful, I hope, for you. But first of all, this article from Paul Mitchell in stuff.co.nz said that Palmerston North house price rise burns through tax changes aimed at dampening property market. Quite a long headline there. He says that the Palmerston North housing market is burning hotter than ever a month after tax changes were meant to cool the property price rises were introduced. Now before I read too much further on this, uh, this is something that when I saw the number of changes from the government that they made around housing recently, I thought it would have the effect of reducing the number of investors in the market. Locally it appears that it has. However, what it doesn't take into account is that where previously there were, say, 8 to 10 offers on houses in Palmerston North, a combination of investors and people wanting to buy to live in themselves, now it's reduced that number, but it's still three or four. I just uh, purchased a house recently and uh, there were four offers. So you're still in that situation where you're having to put in a, a pretty high price to, to get what you want. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, a month after these changes were made that there's little change here in Palmerston North. So what were the changes? At the end of March, the Labour government took aim at property investors as part of a huge package of policies aimed at increasing housing affordability. The Bright Line test was doubled, meaning profits from selling a property within 10 years could be taxed at up to 39% and removing the tax write-offs for interests on rental properties. So in this article, yes, it's given some pause to, mano, to people investing in the money or two, but again, uh, the rate of increases is pretty significant. So QV's house price index, in fact, shows that the average Palmer's North house price rose, and you better brace yourself for this, 30.8% in a year to hit about 687500 in April, outstripping the 21.4% annual change in the national average house price, uh, which is now at 913000 So significant increases here in the Manawatu. When Andy Stewart, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand spokesman uh, for this area, was asked about it, he said that while it paid to keep in mind that sales usually did drop heading into winter, there were fewer investors buying property in the region. So prices, some of that demand, he feels, may come out of it. And it's interesting to see that uh, Palmer's North did have between 115 and 125 houses for sale at any one time recently. Uh, but now it's up to 125 to 135. And that might create some opportunities for what we call the normal house buyers, that is people that aren't working as uh, looking as an investment. So hopefully all things going well there. Uh, the market may, may see some changes generally, uh, but they're not major uh, 
uh, yet in terms of supply versus demand. Now we'll uh, change the direction of the sail now on the boat and we're going heading off in a different direction. I thought seeing as though we are uh, supposedly heading towards some cooler temperatures, not that you would know that from the weekend that we've just had, but this article from Joanna Davis and stuff says, want to keep your home warm and dry? Here's what works and what doesn't. It's really an article about what really keeps your home warm and dry. So they've put some ideas to on what does and doesn't work to the experts at the Energy Efficiency and Conservation, Conservation Authority, uh, interviewing or asking the Group Manager of Strategy, Insights and Regulations, Marcus Palinur. So what is the best way to keep your home warm and dry? Insulation is a top priority. So estimates of the amount of heat lost through the roof, floor and windows of your home vary, but average at around 40% for the roof, 20% for the floor and 25% for the windows. Palinur says the actual figures depend on the construction of the house and the insulation that's already in place. Underfloor and roof insulation are absolutely top priorities for a warm, dry home, he says. It does go on to say that wall insulation is also effective, but because you need to remove the wall lining, it's best to think about it when and if you're renovating. Now, renters are actually okay here because they're being covered uh, by the Healthy Home Standard for insulation from July of 2019, but for your own personal home, you might like to consider this. So is it worth putting in more or better insulation than is required in the building code? Well, Palinur says yes, if you can afford it. He says the code is a minimum standard. Doing better than the code will give you a warmer, drier home. So here's another question. Do we really need to retrofit double glazed windows? Palinur says that double glazing is undeniably effective. If you don't want to replace all your windows, consider doing it piecemeal, one or two windows at a time. The first step is just to think about installing double glazing in the rooms your household uses the most, or where there's condensation, which is quite good advice. As a homemade hack, he says sticking bubble wrap to the glass does work, but it may not be attractive for everybody. Another low-cost solution could be to buy a window buy a window film insulation kit from a DIY store, and it's a transparent film that you tape on and shrink wrap, and it creates another layer. It's also inexpensive as it's $30 for about one or two windows. And that's something to consider uh, if you're renting uh, because the insulation standards relate to uh, ceiling and floor only. So that's something, if you wanted to have a go at, um, that's a easy and effective method. Optimise your curtains. Palinur says that curtains are an easy thing you can do to help keep the heat in. Don't forget you should open them when the sun is shining. He recommends thicker curtains, especially double-layered with a thick lining. Curtains that touch the floor uh, um, or are wider than the window frames that fit tightly against the wall are really helpful. He says where you're going to lose your heat is actually in thermal bridging when different materials touch each other, so the window will transfer the heat from inside your home to the outside. If curtains are in contact with the window, it's worse. Uh, He does not recommend anything like blankets as a low-cost lining solution. There are inexpensive curtain linings and curtain banks in certain areas. Here's another question that was asked to Ika, which is, do you heat the whole house or just the living area? Our position at Ika, he says, is that it's an absolute priority that people's homes should be warm and healthy, but we say you can do that using the rooms you use the most. A basic timer allows for heating up a bedroom shortly before you go into it, for example. 
He doesn't recommend leaving heat pumps on a low setting 24-7. He says if you want to avoid a budget blower, you should set the heat pump just before you get home and switch off when you don't need it. We try to encourage people to set the thermostat between 18 and 21 degrees to combat damp and cold. Above 21 degrees gets more and more expensive to heat, so that's quite a good tip there. Another thing that a lot of people don't do, incidentally, is to clean the heat pump filter regularly, uh, particularly before winter sets in and then every three months. You see, if it has to work harder to uh, get the results due to the heat pump filter not being cleaned, then uh, that's going to add to the power bills. Palinur also recommends that those people on low incomes check their eligibility for grants of up to 90% on heating and home insulation through the Warmer Kiwi Homes programs. That's something you can look up, Warmer Kiwi Homes. Uh, Just Google that and uh, and that would be fine. But there's also more information on home heating, including some cost calculations, can be found at the Gen Less site. That's Gen, G-E-N, and Less, L-E-S-S. Finally, a few more smaller tips just in case you're interested. Roll out the door snakes. You know, they're very basic but effective and are especially worth putting alongside exterior doors. Improve the seal around cat flaps with a silicone sealant or a rubber insulation tape. Don't leave the oven door open as it cools. Uh, That's a safety risk and the heat will escape eventually anyway so it doesn't make a difference. And don't use unflued gas heaters indoors. Now these these were quite common in probably the 70s and 80s, usually in hallways, but the fumes are dangerous and they create about one litre of water vapour per hour. Final thing just for a nice warm healthy home is to don't dry your laundry indoors. A load of washing is thought to release up to five litres of water into the home, so that's pretty amazing. So I'll move on now to look at a little bit of uh, some of the things that the Greens have been saying about uh, about rent renting and about looking at fixing the rental amounts. So Greens co-leader Marima Davidson is pushing for rent controls to address homelessness, the crisis she's responsible for solving in the government. The Greens have launched a new online tool to show Kiwis just how bad renting is. The median rent price increased 6% in the year to March, data from Trade Me Shows, and the figure, 540 a week, is the highest on record. It's a tool to, for people to check how much rent they're paying in the context of their income, Davidson told News Hub. We want to get an accurate picture of what the real situation is for people. We know that well over 40% of people are paying more than 30% of their income on rent, and we still have well over 20% of people paying over 40% of their income in rent. It makes it really hard to live a decent life. So it goes on to to then look at uh, the the idea of of rents, and uh, what the Green has here is a number. Of, Greens have a number of proposals. So along with their new fair rent tool, they've published an online discussion document, and it's a must stress a discussion document outlining various proposals for bringing down rent prices. And these are quite interesting. Uh, this is what they say. The first one is requiring landlords to tell potential new tenants how much rent they charged the previous tenants in a property. Next one is that tenants and landlords could agree how future rent increases will be decided when they first sign a tenancy agreement. The Greens point out that people who are desperate may end up being pushed into an unfair deal. The government or a new independent agency could determine what a reasonable rent increase will be in different parts of the country each year, Rents could go up if the landlord can show substantial property improvements. The Greens go on to say the government or a new independent agency 
could assess what is a reasonable rent for particular types of properties, looking at things like the home size, design, features and location. The government could freeze rents for a period like it did in COVID-19 lockdown last year. The Greens say a quick freeze could be applied while long-term solutions are put in place. The government could increase the accommodation supplement it pays to people on low incomes to help cover housing costs. Currently, the most a single person can get is $165 per week, while families with children can get $305 per week. Marama Davidson says it may not be the one particular solution on its own. We said in the document that simply increasing accommodation supplement on its own may just end up increasing rents, actually, and the extra income will just go back to landlords. Now, some of these ideas are um, fairly unusual, but uh, you know, trying to bring in government controls, it's something that would be um, a, a bit of a disaster, really. But the governments uh, and uh, the, the Greens as well, very keen on trying to replicate, in my opinion, the state housing sector in the private market. And that's something that's very hard to do. Um, and we'll just have to keep tabs on that and watch where that goes. But we'll stop now for a little bit of music just to have a break, and after the break we'll come back and figure out if we're not going to put in our money into housing, where should we put it? But first of all, a little bit of talking heads, the lady don't mind, here on NPR.
And you're listening to Property Matters here on NPR Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo, irarangi o nga tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. Nice having your company. And before the break, we were talking about a number of the things that the government uh, has been doing to make it harder for investors and also some of the proposals that the Greens have put into a discussion document. So uh, it begs the question, and this was answered in an article by Rob Stock on stuff.co.nz, if not housing, where should we put our money? So the uh, friend of mine, Dave David Faulkner, was uh, quoted in this article as saying he's just purchased a commercial property to run his business out of, uh, even though he trains residential property managers for a living and owns residential renting a rental property himself. He is one of many people eyeing alternative places to put their money. Now the government has declared a low-level war on residential landlords. So they've been sent, residential landlords have been sent a clear message that the days of massive capital gains are over. Banks expect house prices to flatten this year and dip in the longer term as interest rates start to rise. I don't think that will happen too much in Manawatu. Now the government policy changes are being fast-tracked to make it less attractive to be a landlord. National leader Judith Collins says bigger bills for landlords will end with higher rents for tenants, which has been evidenced uh, for a number of years now. Investors buying residential rentals will have to pay tax on capital gains if they sell within 10 years, and investors are to progressively lose their ability to offset interest paid on home loans against rental income. Uh, That's actually a move that the Westpac economist Michael Gordon called the most meaningful intervention into the housing market in decades. There's even been talk of rent freezes paralleling the wage freezes announced by the government for even modestly paid civil servants, including police and nurses. So the Reserve Bank has been told to target sustainable house prices and in its monthly financial stability report, the Reserve Bank said investors face this decision, whether to invest in housing and rent it out or to invent in other assets. So one of the other areas you may invest might be commercial and industrial property. Sharon Corwick, who's the executive officer of the Property Investors Federation, says a minority of her members are talking about shifting their focus to small commercial and industrial properties. Probably about two in every hundred landlords she's spoken to said they'll change their portfolios and are looking to go into small commercial and industrial. Commercial property, like residential property, is an option where investors can borrow to invest, which is one of the major draws of households which have equity but little ready cash. Colwick says the vast majority of members have stopped buying residential rentals and the policy changes would drive some landlords with large debts to sell properties after they lose their tax advantages. So, But Nick Goodall, the head of research at CoreLogic, which tracks the property market, says there's no evidence yet that landlords are dumping rentals. So what about if you're building more rentals or, or new rentals? So that's the next big thing for residential property investors. I've noticed this has been happening over the last few months. Is actually people buying more residential investment property but without the emphasis on making quick capital gains. So instead of banking on short-term gains, investors will see homes as assets they could pay off using rental income, gaining equity as the loan is paid down. So there's still long-term appeal for buying property, Goodall says. It's good for a retirement plan. The focus might change, and, and this could be instead of buying existing homes, to buy new build homes because they're exempt from the tax deductibility changes. And that would have a good benefit because that allows more housing stock. So 
Uh, I've been having quite a number of uh, situations where people have been wanting to get rental appraisals on properties that are yet to be built, and then they uh, use that to go and help lend the money, build the home, and rent it out. So really it's uh, something that can be done there as well. What about investing money in your own home? In Australia, your house is your castle, Corwick says. A lot of people have a lot of money invested in them. Australian homes are replete with swimming pools, landscaping, outdoor features and spa pools. She expects the landlord targeting policy changes could result in a wave of people choosing to instead invest in their own homes, thereby increasing their value without facing potential capital gains tax bills on their sale. Last year, Jeremy Gray, who works for Home Renovation's online marketplace Builders Crack, documented a project costing $89,000 to renovate a modest 1960s brick house into a modern family home, which added an estimated $103,000 to its value. And that even included energy-efficient double glazing, uh, a feature that many owner-occupied homes don't have. So renovations that generate a return for the homeowner, like borrowing to install solar insulation or double glazing, can be a good option, says Glenn Harvey, the chairman of the Solar Association of New Zealand, as long as homeowners did their research carefully, installed good quality systems and didn't pay too much for them. Here's another area you could put some money into, shares and punchy growth companies, according to this article. The rise of the DIY retail investor, enabled to become a share market investor through online investment platforms like Sharesies, Hatch and Stake has been one of the stories of the last decade. Matt Liebowitz, the chief executive of Stake, says the platform's fastest growth was among younger people, many of whom are not property owners. 80% of our investors are under 45, he says. Home ownership is far less a reality for them. So the focus of these investors has been heavily on the companies and technologies changing the way the world works and how households spend and consume entertainment. So investing in Facebook, Tesla, Google and Disney is a lot more accessible than it was before, Leibowitz says. I've seen investors who have invested in Tesla three or four years ago taking their money to buy homes. Interesting, high risk I'd imagine uh, doing it that way, but, but interesting nonetheless. So it's possible to borrow to invest in shares, that's pretty risky. Um, and shares are normally bought by people who are, who are already uh, wealthy to a certain extent. The last one on this particular article, which is quite interesting, is cryptocurrencies and other speculative assets, assets being in inverted commas. So the biggest, boldest speculative assets available to retail investors are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but O'Connor sees them as being very other end of the risk scale from property. So crypto is not an investment, it's pure speculation, he says. Produces no revenue, no income stream, it's just speculative. So uh, I noticed that uh, a number of years ago, as a joke, somebody made one called Dogecoin and uh, people started investing in those and uh, and right up to even today, um, those prices have gone up hugely in something that really has little or no actual value. So it's a strange world we, we work in uh, these days. Finally, this article, leaky homeowners seek $220 million in damages from James Hardy. You may recall the nightmare of leaky rotting houses which first emerged in the 1990s. Well, a class action lawsuit by leaky homeowners against Australian building materials group of companies James Hardy will begin on May the 17th. Collectively, the homeowners are seeking about $220 million of damages from James Hardy over leaks in 376 buildings. 
They claim James Hardy's Hardy Tech's cladding system is defective, which the group denies. The lawyer Adina Thorne said the trial, which comes just over six years after the homeowners filed their statement of claim, was expected to last about 15 weeks. Thorne, who has been managing the funded class action, said the High Court had split the action into two stages. The first stage would be focused on whether Hardy Tech's was defective, while the second stage would be to determine the losses for the homeowners, assuming they proved James Hardy's product was defective. The owners alleged James Hardy knew or ought to have known its system failed but kept manufacturing and supplying it, said Thorne. They also argue that James Hardy had a legal duty to warn or inform homeowners about the faults with its product, Thorne said. The homeowners filed the claim in December 2015. It's been a hard road. There have been appeals and various arguments along the way. We've been dealing with a well-resourced set of defendants. It's not been easy. The homeowners were funding their claim through Harbour Litigation Funding, a specialist legal lender based in London. Litigation lenders, including ones based in New Zealand, have played a big part in the rise of class action lawsuits. Now, class action lawsuits are where the individual loss to an individual might preclude them from wanting to go to court because of the costs, yet as an entire class action, as we say, 376 buildings, um, if they hadn't done it this way, this claim would not have been possible. Probably quite expensive, I'd imagine. It would have to involve a large number of international experts, including building and cladding experts, architects and mould experts. So there's around uh, 40 witnesses and 1,500 pages of witness uh, testimony. So the leaky building crisis may have cost the country a combined $47 billion in repairs, remediations and rebuilds, according to the 2019 book Rottenomics by journalist Peter Dyer, with major cities still containing leaky buildings. Some of our owners are still residing in leaky homes that they cannot afford to repair. Before Dyer's estimate, the previous estimate of around 11 to $23 billion to fix all leaky homes was made by PricewaterhouseCoopers in 2009. Dyer blamed both the Labour and National for the debacle because both parties had governed from 1987 to the late 2000s, during which the deregulation resulted in untested building products and techniques flooding the market. So we'll have to keep uh, a watch on that one. Hardy Tex is something, one of the products that's in monolithic uh, cladding homes. If you're wondering if your home has uh, Hardy Tex, you can search the records at the council to see if you have that product. And that's all that we have time for today. It's been lovely having your company here on One or Two People's Radio or where all good podcasts are found. I'm Greg Watson and we'll catch you again next week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.